0: And if you would, you can turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. This morning, as we continue in our Advent series, we will be in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. And the key truth we're going to see this morning from this passage is this intentionally waiting upon the Lord grows our faith in Christ's return. So the key truth that we're going to see in this text is again that intentionally waiting upon the Lord grows our faith. In Christ's return so this is Luke chapter 2 verses 22 through 40 so let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word this morning and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting in prayer and night and day, and coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, we began this sermon series, this Advent season, in the Gospel of Luke, by considering the fact that nothing grows our faith like waiting. Nothing grows our faith like waiting. Because when you're waiting, you're dependent on somebody else. You're dependent on what they're doing. You are no longer independent, or at least your illusion of independence has to drop. Because now someone else and what they do is going to determine what happens to you. And the reason then that waiting grows our faith is because while we're waiting, what happens is all of our doubts, all of our uncertainties, they bubble up to the surface. We start to wonder, well, what if this thing I'm waiting for, what if it doesn't happen? What's next for me? What if that person doesn't come through? And we don't like feeling that way. We hate waiting. And we tend, therefore, to become very impatient or distracted while we're waiting, And so it's worth us asking ourselves, what makes you impatient or distracted when you're waiting? What makes you impatient or distracted when you're waiting? And that question's important because the ways you and I struggle to wait for very little things in life, like a sandwich in the drive-thru, your coffee, your dentist appointment, the way we struggle to wait in those things very likely reflects the ways in which we struggle to wait upon the Lord. If we say, oh, I'm someone who waits upon the Lord... But every time I'm waiting for something, I get very impatient or sucked into distraction. I'm probably kidding myself about how intentionally I really am waiting upon the Lord. And so often then in life, we're not waiting upon the Lord so much as we're impatiently doing our own thing and we'll credit God so long as things go the way we want to. But in the moment something doesn't go right, we have to wait because our plans don't pan out. We get impatient. We start scrambling. We get frustrated. We get angry. And what makes us impatient is we feel like, I ought to be able to do something. I don't deserve to wait. I deserve to have what I want right now. I'm better than this. Or other times, maybe we're not impatient, but we distract ourselves when we're waiting. Again, we don't like what comes up in our hearts and our minds when we're alone with our thoughts. If you've listened to car radio by 21 Pilots, that's what they're talking about. You know, you got to replace that slot with something to make noise again because when you are alone with your thoughts, you think, I don't want to be here. I need anything, Candy Crush, YouTube, something to distract me while I wait here. And so what's the alternative then to impatient action or to distracted passivity? Well, the alternative is waiting upon the Lord, recognizing that there is a God on his throne who loves you and who is the primary actor in your life Not you. Listen to how Alan Noble defines waiting upon the Lord in his very good book, You Are Not Your Own, which is a meditation on our confession of faith at the beginning of our service, that first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. Noble defines waiting upon the Lord like this, waiting doesn't mean inaction, but action in rest, or more specifically, action resting in God's providence. In other words, when we wait upon the Lord, it's not that we just sit around and we twiddle our thumbs, but the way we do all things that we do, we do so from a confidence and a rest in God's providence. And God's providence is his action in this world. He's not a distant, detached father, but he's the God of all creation at work in every detail of our lives. And in the passage we are exploring this morning, we meet two people who bear witness to Jesus when he comes to the temple for the first time. They are Simeon and Anna. And both of them had spent their whole lives waiting upon the Lord, resting in his providence. When it looked bleak and grim, they still waited upon the Lord in all their days. And it grew their faith in the king that God had promised to send. And God used their waiting to prepare them to receive him. And as we'll see as we look at their example, God does the same in our lives today, helping us intentionally wait upon him as we look forward to Christ's return so let's dig into the text together and see this pan out as we meet these two witnesses waiting upon the Lord now as you look at verse 22 with me you'll notice that Luke before he introduces us to Simeon and Anna he actually tells us more about Mary and Joseph and what he highlights in these first handful of verses is this that Mary and Joseph were very faithful in observing God's law as they raised Jesus They were faithful Israelites. They took God's word seriously, and they built their lives upon it. And Luke highlights two particular things that they did in observing God's law. And the first thing was going to the temple to offer sacrifices for their purification when the time came, as Luke puts it. And so maybe you've spent time reading the Old Testament. You've been in Leviticus Leviticus or Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you've read about these purification laws before, and you've always thought, "What, what is going on there? I don't understand these laws. Well, all of these laws in the Old Testament, they were given by God to train the Israelites in their love for God. You may think, well, how, how does, what does this have to do with God's love? Well, it trained them to love God's holiness, to love the fact that he is God and we are not, that he is almighty, he is perfect, he is not stained by sin or death. Because in a fallen world, in a world marked by sin and its curse and death, that has an effect on us. It shapes us It makes us unfit to enter God's presence. And so there were certain areas in life where God had given the Israelites commandments and instructions to purify themselves, to prepare themselves to enter into his presence. So for example, if you handled a dead body, there were certain steps you would take before you entered the presence of the God of life. And even with childbirth, this was another place where God had given instructions for how to prepare yourself to re-enter his presence at the temple in worship. This wasn't because God had a low view of childbirth or of women, but remember, the curse affected childbirth, did it not? Genesis 3. What God says to Eve is there will now be pain in this because it has been changed by the fall. And so when that happens, although it is a joyous thing, there are also steps God gave Israelites to take to get ready to come back into his presence and worship. And so whenever we think about purification and uncleanness and we come across that either in places like this in the New Testament Or in the Old Testament, you have to remember, being unclean or impure in the Bible isn't the same thing as being sinful. It just means the fallenness of the world has made you uh, need to take steps to come back into God's presence. And so the steps here would have been offering these sacrifices and remembering that we need God to make all things new so we can be in his presence. That's what Mary and Joseph were doing as they observed these laws. And the purification law that Luke has in view here came from Leviticus 12. It was there that God talked about, okay, if you have a child, here are the steps to take before you come back to the temple. And so if a woman had a son, she would be unclean for seven days, and then on the eighth day, her son would receive the sign and seal of the covenant, circumcision. That was verse 21. We saw that last week. Jesus received circumcision on his eighth day. And then for 33 days, that woman would wait before coming back to the temple. And when she got there, she was supposed to offer a sacrifice. She would offer a lamb As a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove, a small bird, as a sin offering. But Leviticus also noted it said, But if she doesn't have a lot of money, she can offer two turtle doves or two pigeons. And notice what Luke quotes. He quotes that provision for the poor, which shows us Mary and Joseph did not have a lot. Jesus was not born into a family that had everything, he was born into a family of modest means. Joseph, his adoptive earthly father, is a carpenter. He couldn't buy Jesus every toy. He couldn't even afford a lamb for the sacrifice. So he and Mary came, and they offered the, the, uh, the offering for the poor, two turtle doves or two pigeons. And so Jesus was born into an ordinary family, and they didn't have everything, but what they had was a love for the Lord, and they raised him in that. And so Mary and Joseph, they go, and they take Jesus to the temple, one, to offer these purifica- uh, purification sacrifices. They are faithful to God's law. But they also go to present Jesus to the Lord, At the temple. Notice the other thing that Luke quotes. This is in verse 23. He says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, your Bible may have a footnote. It tells you that comes from Exodus 13. Now, think about it. What had just happened in Exodus? Well, it was the Passover, it was the 10 plagues upon Israel as God rescued his people from the tyranny and the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And that 10th plague was the loss of life for Pharaoh and every Egyptian's firstborn son, not only for humans, but even for their livestock. And on the heels of that, God turned to the Israelites and he said, listen, from this day forward, the firstborn male, for humans and for animals, you will set it apart from my service. And when your kids ask you, why do we do that? You'll tell them, it's because the Lord rescued you with a strong hand from Pharaoh. In other words, God gave them this practice so that they could introduce every generation that followed that didn't see in person God's mighty hand deliver Israel, they would know, this is your God. This is what he has done for our people down through the generations. And we remember that by setting apart the firstborn male, whether animal or human. Now later on in Numbers 18, God added additional instructions and he said, listen, the men who will actually be literally set apart will be only from the Levites. The Levites were the tribe who would serve in the temple. For the rest of the Israelites, they would bring their firstborn son to the temple and they'd pay uh, five shekels of silver as a redemption price. So the son was still set apart, but then he would go back and live with their family. That is what Mary and Joseph are doing here for Jesus. And yet, think about it. So at Passover, remember what God had the Israelites do in Egypt. They offered a lamb and put the lamb's blood over the doorpost, so that the angel of the Lord, when he came through and struck down the Egyptian firstborn, passed over the Israelites firstborn. And now here is God's son, made flesh, now Mary's boy, carried by her and Joseph to the temple, brought there, the five shekels will be paid. But in doing this, in obeying God's law perfectly, Jesus is being prepared as the Lamb of God, who will offer his blood for your sins and for mine. So there is deep meaning being woven together here as the Lamb of God is not only fulfilling this law from the Passover, but he himself is preparing to be the one upon whom God's wrath will not pass over, but will fall for me and for you so that we could be redeemed. So there is much happening in these first few verses. Now, as we look at that, Luke then introduces us in verse 25 to a man in Jerusalem. And this man is named Simeon, Luke doesn't tell us very much about Simeon. We don't know how old he is, although it seems like Simeon was advanced in years because Luke talks about the way that the Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. So remember, the Lord's Christ, that's the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised king who would come and fulfill all of God's covenant promises for his people. God told Simeon, you will see him come before your days in this life are over. And so Simeon, receiving this word from God, receiving this hope, he waited upon the Lord all his days. Every day, he would would go to the temple and he would look and he'd wonder, is this the day that I will see the king that is coming? And he didn't waste his waiting. He didn't waste all those years. Instead, knowing the word of the Lord, pondering it, storing it up in his heart, he was very intentional in cultivating godly character throughout his life. Notice how Luke describes him. He was a man who was devout, which means he loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He cared about God. God was central in his life. He was a man who was righteous, which meant he cultivated his love for his neighbor as a reflection of God's character in his own life. And so he didn't take God's word to him as a reason just to, you know tune out all those days, but he was active. He was intentional in waiting. He was being shaped as he waited upon the Lord to fulfill this promise to him. So then one day, Luke says, "The very day that Mary and Joseph come bringing the baby Jesus to the temple, the Spirit tells Simeon, "Go to the temple today, because this is the day he got to see the king for himself. This is the day that he even holds that king in his arms. His waiting upon the Lord had prepared him for that moment. He'd stood his watch. And like a faithful watchman waiting for the morning, now the sun has dawned and he sees what he's been waiting his whole life to see. Now he sees the king with his own eyes, God's salvation incarnate, the word become flesh, Emmanuel, God's, which is such a beautiful picture of what happens in faith. When we have faith and he's so overjoyed, he's so filled with with peace from this that he bursts forth like Zechariah and like Mary before him in a song of praise and prophecy. And it begins in verse 29 by saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Well, why? Because my eyes have seen your salvation. He has seen for himself what the word of God had promised him, and that satisfies him. Whatever bucket list dreams he still had yet to do in his life, his life is fulfilled. He says, I can depart in peace because I have now seen Jesus. And knowing Jesus surpasses the worth of anything else for Simeon. His life is fulfilled in this moment as he continues in this prophecy, he then draws out something very particular about what Jesus came to do. So far um, in the other songs in Luke's gospel with Mary and with Zechariah, they haven't focused a ton on the Gentiles, the nations. They focus especially on Jesus coming to Israel. But here, Simeon picks up a thread from the Old Testament, from the Abrahamic covenant, when God promised that he would use his people, Israel, to be a blessing not just to themselves, but to all the nations of the world, that he would work through Abraham's descendants and ultimately through Jesus to draw to himself people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This promise is not boring Bible trivia. This promise is your and my only hope because most of us, if not all of us, are not descended from Abraham. We are not blood members of Israel. We are the nations that Simeon sings about here. And as he's singing in verse 32, he is playing with and and, uh, poetically and, and unfolding Isaiah 49, verse 6, in which God had said this, It is too light a thing that you, he's talking about Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Think about how staggering that is. God is saying you know, so we, it's been 400 years at this point since the Davidic king's been on the throne. The tribes of Israel have been divided for even, uh, even additional centuries since after Solomon's reign. You guys have been in exile. You're scattered all around. The empires of the world are way bigger than you. But you know what? Sending a king just to bring you all back as is Israel, that's too light a thing. That's too easy. It's a grand and glorious thing. It's a fulfillment of his promises. But he's saying, in addition to that, I'm sending Jesus to be the king who would draw people from every tongue, tribe, and nation down through the ages, down through millennia to become part of his kingdom. Jesus is the light of the world. And as Simeon says, he therefore brought glory to Israel as they got to see the promises that they've been waiting for God to fulfill for centuries start to come true. And that was a glorious thing. But Jesus is also the light of the world to bring revelation to the Gentiles. We could not philosophize our way to God. The Greeks tried, they failed. We cannot build up the kingdom with our mighty empires and technological advances. We will try and we will fail. We needed the king to come to be the light, to reveal the father to us because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has come to draw me and to draw you to himself. And that fact fills Simeon with joy and he sings about it. And as his song closes, verse 33, we see Mary and Joseph, they marvel what Simeon says about Jesus. And it's not that they they didn't know that Jesus had come to be the Christ, and they've already been told that, but they're marveling because more and more people keep singing about Jesus. People meet their child, and they burst into song, and now they're they're being reminded, you know, his mission is global. This is a staggering thing, And, and it strikes them deeply. And so Simeon, he blesses Mary and Joseph, and then he turns, and he talks to Mary in particular. And he tells her, he says, listen, this child... He is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and he is to be a sign that is opposed. What's he talking about here? Well, one, he's building upon something Mary herself had sung about back in her song in, in chapter 1, verses 51 and 52. She said she knew that Jesus was coming to scatter the proud in their thoughts and to lift up the humble. So Simeon's picking up on that theme when he talks about the fall and rising of many in Israel, but he's also drawing out the fact that not everyone's going to be excited about Jesus. In fact, there will be many who oppose him. And oppose him doesn't just mean they're like, well, you know, no thanks, that's not for me. Oppose means they will plot against him, they will scheme against him until they can destroy him on the cross, at least so they think. As John put it in John 1 verse 11, Jesus' own people did not receive him. Simeon did. He received Jesus into his arms, but so many of the other Israelites, Jesus' own kinsmen, his fellow countrymen, would oppose him, would try to wipe him out. And it's very important then for me and you, sitting here today, 2,000 years later, to recognize how significant it is that Simeon says it was Israelites who opposed Jesus. That God appointed Jesus for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Here's why that matters. The Israelites, they couldn't just assume that they were in because they were Israelites, because they were Abraham's descendants. They couldn't assume that they were in because they always went to the temple and they, they, uh, they were part of God's people on the outside. And that applies to me and you. You know, you can't assume you're in just because you show up to church every week and you've been doing, you and your family have been doing it for, cent- uh, maybe not centuries, but for decades at the very least. God looks at your heart and he looks at my heart. And he's not swayed or duped or impressed by anything we say or do. He knows our hearts and he knows whether we come here in the humility of faith or we come here with pride. And so being a Christian is Jesus. Christians are those who by faith alone, by grace alone, and in Christ alone have been saved by God and wait upon him. So the way we vote, the causes we champion, the way we parent, the way we educate our morals, our ideas, the things we say and do, the things we do not say and we do not do, none of those things make us a Christian. And none of them make us a better Christian than somebody else sitting in this room this morning. Do you believe that? Is the Lord exposing our pride and showing us ways where actually, I don't live like that's true. Because we have to heed Simeon's final words to Mary. He says, through Jesus, God reveals the thoughts of our hearts. And that's not just, you know, he's revealing like, hey, right now Matt really would like an ice cream sundae. No, he's revealing our pride. The word used there for thoughts is the word used for the schemes that Israel has. When it talks about the Israelites scheming against Jesus and they have opposing thoughts to him, that's the word that is used here. And so nothing exposes our pride like an encounter with Jesus and his word. And so often as Christians, we only ever talk about the parts of the Bible that support things, or at least we think they do, that we already think and believe and agree with. But what about when you come across something in the Bible that challenges you and that shows you, wait a minute, the categories you've created for your worldview and everything else in life, they may not be so neat and tidy. You may have something wrong. Do you come to God's word or you listen to preach and you think, man, that guy or that gal, they need to hear this. Or are you thinking, oh boy, I need to hear this. This is the kind of thing Simeon is talking about here. We need to take uh, take caution lest we puff ourselves up in pride and we miss out on the nourishment that God's word offers us as it humbles us and helps us receive Jesus by faith like Simeon did. And so if the Lord exposes your pride, whether you're reading the Bible on your own or in a small group or it's in the context of worship, remember what we do every week. Run to Jesus the confession of sin, run to him and confess your pride and receive the assurance of pardon you have. Don't get impatient. Don't get sanctimonious to make excuses and don't distract yourself. But in that moment, receive the whole word of God, which includes the gospel of his grace. You cannot make yourself rise or stand, but Jesus, who will fell your pride, can lift you up by his grace. So receive his word, all of it. Now, you may have noticed I passed over something that Simeon said to Mary in verse 35. It's most likely in your Bible in parentheses. And this particular thing he said, it applied to Mary in a very unique way because this parenthetical talks about the way that Jesus' life of suffering would pierce Mary's heart like a sword. This had to do with the fact that she is Jesus' mother. She really is his mother. The way mothers you are the mother to your child, that is how Mary felt about Jesus. The man of sorrows, the scripture talks about, is Mary's firstborn son. God's suffering servant is the little boy that she taught to walk. And she would have to watch him walk into the jaws of opposition from his own people. As God sent his own son to die for our salvation, he was sending Mary's baby boy to the cross for her own sin. This would pierce her soul like a sword because she would watch as this boy that she raises grows to a man who would suffer in a totally unique way, would suffer the wrath of God in our behalf. And although then Mary alone was Jesus' mother, Simeon's words to her do remind you and I that we will all suffer as we follow Jesus. Thank God that because of the gospel, none of us will suffer like he did on the cross, but like Mary, we will suffer As we follow Jesus, he tells us as much. If the world has hated him, what will it do to us? And that is not to make us triumphalistic and say, yeah, you know, the world, it's so awful. But it's actually to encourage us and to say, love your enemies well. It's going to hurt, but that's what Jesus did. And then Luke introduces us to somebody who knew that firsthand, and her name is Anna. Look at verse 36. Anna is someone who knew firsthand that waiting upon the Lord is often full of very much suffering. She is the second witness to Jesus' first coming at the temple. And Luke highlights a few things about her life. He explains she was a prophetess, which means she was someone that God spoke to and, and revealed his word so she could share it with others. She was from the tribe of Asher, and Asher was one of the northern tribes that broke away from Judah when the kingdom was divided. So she's one of the lost tribes, but she didn't go after the idols. She waited upon the Lord faithfully. And the way she did that, again was in tremendous suffering. Notice what else he says. She was advanced in years, and she had lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So what that means is most Israelite women would get married when they were around 13 or 14. That's what he means by when she was a virgin. She was maybe 13 or 14 when she got married, like Mary probably was, and she was married for seven years. Her husband died, which means she was widowed from the time of her early 20s. And Luke explains then, she lived as a widow until she was 84 So we're talking about decades of life on her own. And think about that for Anna. The anticipation of getting married, of having and raising children together with her husband, of growing old together, all of that was stripped away from her. It was all gone. And yet she did not count her life, though it was extremely hard as being over, but she waited upon the Lord and she was intentional in the way she waited upon the Lord. She was at the temple every day If there was a time where God's people gathered and worshipped, she was there. And she was active in her waiting. She worshipped God with fasting and prayer. Her heart and her mind and her soul was in it. And all of this shaped her over the long haul to become this woman who would bear witness to the king who had now come to save his people so that she could encourage others who were also waiting upon God. Now Luke doesn't give us a full biography of Anna. We don't know a lot about her life And I would caution us against thinking, man, she seems so amazing. And she is, but don't think that she never doubted. Don't think that she never questioned God's goodness in the midst of her suffering. This was hard for her. We're seeing the fruit of of years of waiting upon the Lord. There was struggle in her life. But what Luke does show us from her example is that even the hardest of lives can be filled with joy and with peace if it waits upon the Lord. Your suffering and your hardship, they may mean that very many of your hopes and dreams for this life are dashed and will not happen. That's a hard reality to face, but it is often true. But at the same time, the gospel of Jesus Christ means that your suffering does not block you from a rich and meaningful life as a member of God's family, the church. In fact, we the church need each other when we are going through suffering. Like Anna, your example can help you minister to other church members when you are faithfully waiting upon the Lord in the midst of suffering. There's no rubric for that in the world. It's interesting. You know, Josh mentioned how we found the verse to all creatures of our God and we never sing it because we're allergic to suffering. We're allergic to mourning. We don't know how to deal with that, but we need to bring it in. And so when you're going through hard things, we need you here with us. And, and we know you need us too, and we want to stand our watch with you. And so Anna, when she, notice how Luke explained, she was encouraging other people who were waiting upon the Lord. People would listen to her. Because when Anna spoke to you and said, hey, wait upon the Lord, you know she has been living this out. If she says she's doing that, she's been doing it for real. And her example and her encouragement had weight. It had substance. So she was someone who was very much equipped to be used in the life of God's people and all sorts of fruitful in ordinary and absolutely beautiful ways. And so as we think about her and Simeon together, they also remind us that you are never too old to play a meaningful role in the life of the church. I think about this very often as a youth pastor because the number one assumption that adults have about ministering to students is that eventually you hit some unspecified age where you're too old and not cool and relevant enough to minister to young people that's bogus because Anna and Simeon prove otherwise. They embody Psalm 145 verse 4 which says this and this is the biblical definition of youth ministry. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What is youth ministry? It is the older generations commending the character and person of our God and his mighty acts to the next generations. Super simple. And Anna and Simeon were doing it. They were part of the older generations who had faithfully stood their watch through all their suffering, all their days, and they're passing on everything they've gleaned to those who are coming up behind them, to Mary and Joseph as they prepare to parent Jesus, to Jesus himself. And so their example has much, much to teach us. You know, so often as you think about the way people talk about generations today, is we're obsessed with generational labels. You've got boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z, whatever's gonna come that my kids are in, we just haven't made up a cool name yet. But so often, we talk about these generational differences like we're talking about different species. But we are really silly if we think the generational differences, one, apply to every member of each generation in the same way. Not all millennials are self-obsessed and on social media. Not all Gen Zers think the same way and like Spider-Man, although most of them do. Not all boomers complain about politics on social media all day. And not all Gen Xers are just lost in the fray, you know? So that's probably landing on all of us in some pretty painful ways. But think about all the damage then that is done when all we do is talk about each other with these pointless labels. Again, if you're a sociologist, you need this stuff because you need research funding. And the way you get that is you catch people's attention with fancy labels. But again, we are silly if we think, one, that those labels apply to everybody equally. And we are far more silly if we think that those labels can get in the way of our God ministering to his people from one generation to the next. Think about Ephesians 4, 5 through 6. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the times change, the people change, the labels change, but our God and his gospel do not change. And so the biggest threat to the future of the church is not generational differences. The biggest threat is us becoming too impatient and too distracted as we wait upon the Lord that we therefore forget about the next generation and we don't minister to them. We talk about them in their presence, but we never talk to them. Let's be like Simeon and Anna. Let's not do that. Because notice too, Mary and Joseph, they're another example of raising the next generation to wait upon the Lord. And notice how they do it. They do it with Jesus. They're raising Jesus, who is God's son incarnate. And yet, it's not like God just raised, you know, through Jesus to any old parents who didn't take him seriously. No, Mary and Joseph, five times it's said in this text, they are faithful and obeying God's law. Think about what this means. We heard in our assurance of pardon, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is taught the way of the Lord. He is taught the truth of scripture. He's taught to live in prayer by Mary and Joseph. We have to remember the truth of the Incarnation. Jesus is truly God, and he became truly human, which means as an infant at the temple here, he's not doing calculus and reciting Psalm 119 in his mind. You know, sometimes you kind of think like, well, if he's truly God, right, that means he knows everything from the jump. Well, no, he's truly human. He's got to develop. That's verses 39 and 40. When Luke tells us that Jesus grows. He becomes strong. He's filled with wisdom, and the favor of God is upon him. Jesus grew up. And that especially is encouraging uh, young people. There is not a stage of your life until you hit about 33, because that's when Jesus died. But in the turmoil of adolescence, Jesus was there first before you. And he knows that. He grew up. He never sinned. He obeyed God's law perfectly. But he experienced the fallenness of a changing body, of hormones and a mind and a heart that have to develop. And again, he became perfect in doing all that, and he never sinned, as Hebrews makes very clear, but he was really human. He is really human. And God in his providence gave him parents to teach him in very simple and ordinary ways to wait upon the Lord as he was preparing for his ministry. Think about that. Jesus waited 30 years before he started teaching and going about his ministry and beginning the road to the cross. So for 30 years, the Son of God grows and develops Everyone thinks he's just a normal carpenter's son and Mary's boy growing up. And yet all the while, as he waits upon the Lord those three decades, he's being shaped and prepared for the cross and the trials that, lied ahead for our, that lay ahead for our redemption. And even now, as he sits at his father's right hand, he is waiting for his return. And we also are waiting for him. And that's why, if you look at your bulletin, I've shared another quote with you. This is from J.C. Ryle a well-known British preacher and theologian, he tells us how we can model or reflect Anna and Simeon's example. He says this, Let us strive, like them, to walk by faith and look forward. The second advent of Christ is yet to come. The complete redemption of this earth from sin and Satan and the curse is yet to take place. Let us declare plainly by our lives and conduct that for this second advent, we look and long. We may be sure that the highest style of Christianity, even now, is to wait for redemption and to love the Lord's appearing. And so this Advent season, especially as you're about to have some time off uh, from work and hopefully you can get some time with family and friends, a great question to consider on your own, but especially together, is this how can you become more intentional in waiting upon the return of our King? How can you become more intentional in waiting upon the return of our king? I use that turn of phrase uh, um, uh, intentionally, Tolkien fans. You know, if you read Return of the King from the Lord of the Rings, you're like, man, I wish something like that was gonna happen. It is gonna happen. Are you living like it? Our king's coming back. So how can we live more intentionally knowing that that is true? I was in a a restaurant recently and I I heard uh, two two women um, talking about uh, just the next generations, one, one of them complimented the other one's grandson. They were eating together. And all of a sudden, the one who offered the compliment said, I'm so glad I'm not growing up today. And she's saying that in front of this 12-year-old kid eating some chicken minis. I gave away where I was eating. Um, I was like, he's sitting right there. Like, you didn't, you didn't, And you know, they're talking to each other about the kid. And he's a very polite kid, so he's just eating his food. But that's a picture of so much of what we do in the church, when it comes to the next generation. We talk about them and they're sitting right there and all we give them is despair and frustration. They don't see our hope. They don't even see our faces because we're not talking to them. And so the next generation, it doesn't need our despair. They don't need us to tell them what to do all the time. We raise them in the ways of the Lord, but that doesn't mean bossing them around. They need us in their lives. They need us in relationship with them. And they need to see our hope in Christ our King who will return. Those are the places where they will learn from us about waiting upon the Lord. And in Christ, you have the basis for those relationships. If you're a member here, you've probably raised your right hand several times now when parents have brought their children forward for baptism. And even if you haven't, if you're a member here or if you're a part of the body of Christ, you have gifts that you get to use to to do with the next generation. And so there are few better ways that you could intentionally wait upon the return of Jesus and by investing in the next generation, recognizing that if Jesus doesn't come back in your lifetime, he might come in theirs, and you want to do everything you can to equip them for that. And then think about, you know, for those of us who are raising children, or maybe you're thinking about having children someday, that's another way you can intentionally wait upon Jesus. It's very common to hear people say today, I could never bring a child into this world You know, war in Europe, pandemics, this economy, climate change, you know, you name it. There are reasons people have of being terrified that we are just descending into dystopia. And we shouldn't just dismiss that and be like, ah, that's silly. Why do you worry about that? No, that's someone thinking about the realities of bringing life into a fallen world. But but when you have a child and you raise that child, you're not just bringing them into a fallen world. You're bringing them into the place where our God is on the move and where he can call and draw them to himself and bring them into his kingdom. When a child comes into this world, that is someone that one day heaven may sing over and clap their hands and rejoice because they turn by faith to Jesus, and they will have life everlasting with him when he returns. And so our parenting is a great way we can wait upon our king and his return. And for all of us, whether you're single or married, whether you're young or old, whatever your place and position in life, We can intentionally wait upon Christ's return by focusing much more on what has God given me that I can give away to others, to draw them into the kingdom, to encourage them as they're in the kingdom, but focusing on that instead of living as if the the awful adage, it's a millennial one, I think, of YOLO is true, you only live once. So often we live as if that's true. I've got to get through my bucket list, I've got to travel and see the world, have the best retirement, have the best vacations before I have kids or whatever stage of life you're in. We gotta get the most now. And the unspoken thought there is that if you don't get it now, you'll never get anything better. That's not true because Jesus is coming back and he will make all things new. He will wipe away your tears. He will wipe away every trace of your sin and you will be with him forever. So spend your days giving away that good news as you wait for his return.